All right, so three things we see in chapter three. Paul asks for two prayer requests that he wants the church to be praying for. He gives a stern warning to the church. He encourages them at the end of the chapter saying, I'm praying for you. We don't often hear Paul ask for prayer. He's usually praying for others, but today Paul is asking for prayer. Now let's look at verse one and two. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith. So Paul's first prayer request, he refers to Psalm 147, 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. The word of God is powerful, right? Hebrew tells us that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, so sharp that it pierces even the division of soul and spirit. Warren Wiersbe said, when the word of God does the work, then God gets the glory because God's word does God's work. That makes sense, doesn't it? God's word can accomplish so much more than we can if we just would get out of the way, right? It moves faster and swifter, and it pierces deeper than we could ever do. Paul's heart was to advance the kingdom of God, right? He went on three missionary journeys. He, it estimated that he traveled over 8,000 miles, mostly on foot, no car back in those days. In Paul's day and age, people typically walk 20 miles a day. This would be a day's journey for them. So he covered 88,000 8, miles in his three missionary journeys around Asia and the country of Greece. I want today, if our heart, if it's our heart to carry the word of God wherever, however, the duration that we need to, would we have the same heart that Paul had? Paul was a bold witness for God, and here he's asking for this particular prayer request. I believe this year, the Lord personally is wanting me to go deeper with him. I walked with the Lord for about 30 years, but this is a new season, as most of you know. My house is quiet, and it's different. He wants me more. He wants a deeper intimacy in my walk with him. He wants me to go much deeper and higher. The Lord is constantly taking us deeper, isn't he? And he's constantly desiring us to reach higher and wider in our relationship with him. We never arrived. I don't care how long you've walked with the Lord and what you do for the Lord, you never arrive. And if you have, you're on dangerous ground. I would pray and ask the Lord to give you a heart to want to grow. We're constantly being challenged in our faith to grow and our walk with the Lord. The Lord will often use adversity. In fact, I will say he most always uses adversity to accomplish his plan and purpose to get us to go deep and high with him. The same is true with Paul. Prayer is such an important part of our walk with the Lord, and as Paul here is asking for prayer and he ends with praying, I think something that's always on my New Year list is to pray more. Lord, help me to pray more, to intercede more, to pray more deeply. Have you ever said to a girlfriend, hey, I'll, you know, I'll pray for you for that? No! Stop right there and pray for them, because half the time you walk away and you forget. We should just be more on top of it. I just didn't want to encourage all of us in that. I don't think we're alone when we say that we are not wimps when we say, help me to be more consistent in my prayer. I honestly think it should be on our list every year. Lord, help me to pray even more. But let me ask you, when is the last time you've asked for prayer? As believers, we typically offer, let me pray for you, or how can I pray for you? Do you need prayer? I'll, I'll be praying for you this week. But when have you ever stopped and said, you know, I really need, I need prayer for this. We need each other. And I think the world's lie 
wants us and our own flesh, um, our own insecurities, want us to believe that we don't need each other. And that's a lie from the devil because we do need each other. Paul is a great example here. He needed prayer. So let's be reminded to pray more. Make sure that you make time at your tables tonight to not talk the whole time, but to pray. And actually, let me encourage you, before you even look at the questions, I encourage you to pray first. Don't even share what you need prayer for. Just dive right into prayer and then talk after. That's my encouragement for the table leaders to lead that tonight. It is good to be reminded how, about how we neglect prayer. Matthew 7, verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to, to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Matthew 21, 22. And whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. John 14, 13 through 14, and whatever you ask in my name that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let's ask God to do big things in our families, restore relationships, and do big things in us. We need to pray big. Tony shared at Calvary York last Sunday, and it really hit me. Ask for the stars, but then humbly accept whatever God allows to come to pass in accordance with his will. Because our God is not a genie in a bottle. We can't say, oh, Lord, I want this, this, and this, and the Lord just does that. Or I want these things to go this way. And then we often struggle with, oh, he must not love me because he didn't answer those prayers right. He has the bigger plan. Remember, his ways are better than our ways. His thoughts are better than our thoughts. He sees the beautiful quilt. We see all the ugly side. You know, and the knots and all the, he, his, he will allow what, what should come to pass. So we need to keep trusting him, even if he doesn't answer, if he answers differently than how we are praying. It's just not in accordance with his will, which sometimes can be really hard. But keep trusting, keep asking, keep seeking. What do you ask the Lord in prayer? God promises us in three, these scriptures that he will do it and he will be glorified which is the second part of Paul's first prayer request in verse 1, that God would be glorified. So you know that whenever you're seeking to grow and for the Lord to be glorified, who's right behind you? The enemy. He's not far behind. Therefore, Paul added a second prayer request found in verse 2, that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. Just as the Lord uses dedicated people to share God's word, Satan uses wicked people to oppose God's word. The word unreasonable here means not guided by or based on good sense, difficult, headstrong, irrational, intolerant, and excessive. The word wicked means evil and morally wrong, sinful, corrupt, volatile, unpredictable, frightening, destructive, extremely unpleasant. Wickedness stems from immorality. All wickedness stems from immorality which is moral misconduct or violating moral principles. It means not conforming to the patterns of conduct usually accepted or established as consistent with the principles of moral and social ethics. Wow, that's a big definition. Did you guys all get that? (laughs) Meaning basically lacking character. That's what it means. Basically, it's the opposite of biblical living. And many of us were there before we got saved, right? We were the immoral woman that the Bible talks about. But praise God, he got a hold of our lives, right? And he can make us white as snow. 
For this work has to take place in our lives, obviously for us to grow in the Lord, but we have to be teachable and we have to want change. We must obey the word of God and let the spirit work in our lives to change us. We cannot change by ourselves and we cannot change anybody. That's the Lord's work. These people that Paul is referring to were strong-willed and adamant in their pursuit for one thing, and that was to destroy Paul. They were specific people that had caused him pain in the past and opposition. They were mean, violent, and corrupt. And he had asked the church to please pray them out of his life. They were like obstacles in the path of Paul, and he knew it. And that's why he shared this with the people and asked for prayer. There are times that you may have a prayer request like this. You may see some obstacle in your life, and it may be a person. This happens at times, and you may have to do what Paul did, ask for prayer like Paul did. Many times when you first come to know the Lord, I, I, this happens with a lot of young women who are dating, and they're in relationships with ungodly guys. They're unequally yoked. That's an obstacle. They shouldn't be, you know, they got, God's got to get them out of their lives because it's going to hinder them and stumble them. They're not going to grow. And um, I know because it happened in my own life. We can allow people and things that are in our lives that can really hinder our relationship with the Lord. That's when we really need to pray to the Lord. Remove this obstacle in my life. It's not causing me to grow. It's just making me backslide. It's making me struggle. It's making me think this way. And it's, it's not encouraging because it's hindering me from going forward. You know this happened to the children of Israel. Let's turn to Joshua 7. Um, you guys can turn there if you want. While you're doing that, I'm going to recount uh, the story. After the battle of Jericho, when the walls fell down flat and God, God used men's voices of shouting and marching around the walls for seven days, he allowed an unconventional means to accomplish this great, mighty work of God. He was after this. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know why my nose wasn't running. It's running all of a sudden. This is because I'm up here. All right. I'm sorry. Hold on. Okay. All right. That should be good. Um, okay. So he allowed an unconventional means to accomplish this great, mighty work of God. Because that's how our God works, right? He always uses an unconventional means to accomplish his work. No. It was after this incredible work of God that the children of Israel experienced defeat in their own life. Has that ever happened to you? This defeat came at Ai, a small city compared, compared to Jericho with very few people. We're going to look at Joshua 7, verses 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is besides Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out that country. So the men went up there and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from them before the gate as far as Shibirium, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Verse 5. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Whether it's 3,600 or 36 people, they had the same reaction, utter devastation, especially because of their recent victory. We had this huge victory, and now we have defeat. You know, after a great victory always comes a time of testing. Kaylee might be able to test to that. She just came off of a mountaintop, you know, being on a missions trip. 
sometimes the Lord, you end up hitting, you know, getting hit with something, some testing afterwards. Where will you turn? Who will you run to? And will you turn away from the Lord? In this case, Joshua knew that there was a problem. Verse 6 tells us, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why? You know it's not wrong to ask God why, right? As long as you get up and you ask God how. Joshua was vulnerable before the Lord, and verse 7 tells us, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us, all that we would have been content and dwell on the other side of the Jordan? We are never supposed to get to a place of content in our Christian walk. The Lord says, no, 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 don't want you to be content. So I'm going to allow something in your life to take you deeper, to drive you deeper, closer to him, to get you on your face, like Joshua here. And I just share briefly, I know I've shared in the past, but that hit me with York. I was very content in York, very content. I did not have any desire to leave York, did not have any desire to pull my kids out of Christian School of York. I thought they'd be there forever, and I'm sure I've shared this before. But the Lord was doing something bigger in me and my husband's life. We were very content. We were happy with our best friends there, family. They were like family to us. We loved our home. We loved everything. I loved my job there with a the urologist group. Um, but God wanted more, you know, and he told us, time to move on. So he doesn't want us to be content in our walk with him. He wants us to be growing. He wants you to drive. He wants to, you to go deeper, and he will use things in your life to make you go deeper, um, to get you on your face. The Lord doesn't want us to be content. He wants us to be continually trusting him for more, for greater things, to use us in other people's lives for a greater depth of character that he's working in our life, which comes through adversity, greater heights of trusting him for the victory. But the Lord will not leave us in this place of despair. Let's look, let's look at verse 10 in Joshua 7. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you, why do you lie thus on the floor, in, on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken some of the accursed things, and have stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before the enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Oh my, I'd be shaking my boots. Verse 13, get up. Sanctify the people or set apart your people. So Joshua did just that. He got up to see his people and to find out where the sin was in the camp. Wouldn't it have been great if the Lord just said, hey, Joshua, it's in the family of Achan. But he didn't because he wanted this to serve as an example for the whole nation of Israel to see a godly reverence. They didn't know exactly what was going on. Joshua went tribe to tribe trying to find out the one who did it. And it wouldn't have been nice if he just came forward and said, hey, it was me, I stole those things, they looked really pretty and I wanted them. But he didn't, he didn't do those things. He doesn't do that. So verse 19 says, now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Verse 20, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 
200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them and they are there hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. As you read this, you see that not only is he killed, but his whole family. I had to like read it and then read it again. I'm like, Lord, why his whole family and the animals? You guys know I have an animal issue. Um, and I just was like, why the animals? They didn't do anything, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute, what about these people? But why? Because they knew. They knew what he did, and they were helping him hide it. His family was part of it, and they were very well aware of what he did. But we know every act of disobedience comes with a consequence. The Bible tells us what we reap, we will sow, right? Because of this, I used to pray that for my kids. Okay, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but you do, and let it come out. Let, it, let the truth be out. And it would happen. It was so cool when it would happen like that. The Lord just always was faithful in that. <laughs> Sorry, girls. Because of this man's decisions, 36 people died. 36. This one family's sin affected the whole nation. That should break your heart. We can never hide our sin from God. We know that, right? God sees all and he knows all. He is long-suffering and kind with us, but we can't hide from him. David said of God's correction, your rod and staff, they comfort me. No one likes to be corrected by the Lord, but it's necessary for our continued growth. Hebrews 12, 5, 11 encourages us not to lose heart in our discipline. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. For a moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceable fruit of right, fruits of righteousness. Are you in a time of discipline, and are you allowing it to train you? We can choose to go, grow from it. The Lord was faithful to lead and guide Joshua in ministry, and he gave him courage to even take the next step. This wasn't an easy thing for Joshua to impart this discipline. He had to watch. This was grieving for him as he's watching his whole family be killed. But God used this as an example to everybody else who watched on, who looked at Joshua and respected him for this decision. We are examples as well. Some of you may be the only Christian in your family. And you're having to make hard decisions about following hard after Jesus. Let me encourage you today that it's all worth it to stand for what's right. You will never regret standing for what's right, no matter how painful it is. Paul had confidence that his readers would not yield to the evil one, but would allow the Lord to establish them, them and to guard them. All right, let's go back to Thessalonians, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from this evil one. I have that underlined. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. The Lord is always watching out for us. He loves us, and he's faithful to keep us. Paul tells us that he will establish us, meaning he will set us up. He'll initiate, form, start, institute, and build you up. Remember, he didn't leave you as he found you. You've, you've grown. You've had to have grown. 
He will also guard you. He will be the person who keeps watch over you. He is our protector, our guardian. I remember when the girls um, were infants, I literally was so petrified. I think when I brought the, the babies home, you couldn't put them on their stomach. I don't know if that's the same now. Is that the same now? You still can't put them on your stomach? Um, and I just would, I, mean, I was exhausted from being up all night, you know, and I'm, I'm just standing there staring at them sleeping because I wanted to see if they were breathing. And you just, you just worry in a different way. But God says he will be our protector, our guardian. He watches over us. Why does Paul tell us this? Because verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord concerning you both, you do, that you do and will do the things we command you. Verse 5, now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. It's interesting to me that Paul uses these two words, love and patience, because they're what? Two of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Yes, this is hard. I'm telling you I have this prayer request to remove these Jews in my life that are hindering my work. But he says, may the Lord direct your hearts. When we are in these times, whether we are being disciplined or God's using us to correct someone else or to stand, we need to be mindful that it's in love, in patience. It's not harsh and, you know, it's not mean. So Paul leaves these prayer requests and he turns to five commands seen in verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brethren who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. But we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we share with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you, among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Verse 12 says, Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good, and if any one does not obey our word in this epistle, note that that person, and do not keep company with him, that he may feel shame, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here we see five commands that are given from, Paul's, um, from Paul the Apostle. The first is to withdraw from any brother who walks disorderly. To walk disorderly, we learned earlier in the study, is to be out of order, out of rank. Um, to know, we know that our God has order. He has order in our home, order in the marriage. He has order in our job, our workplace. It's just not, can't just be chaos. Nothing would get accomplished. He gives us order in the church as well. Paul commands that we remove or withdraw or leave or pull away from every brother or sister who walks in an unorganized way. When one is disorderly or cluttered or chaotic, it's very likely that there is confusion in their life. Those sorts of people come into the body of Christ. They bring confusion and division in the church. And it can happen in your home and the workplace as well. So Paul refers to these people in verses 11 as busybodies. The Greek word for busybody literally means to be fooling around and not accomplishing anything. 1 Timothy 5.13, And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house, not only idle, but also gossip and busybodies, saying things which they ought not to. Paul exhorts them next to work in quietness. Don't be loud. Don't be obnoxious and eat your own bread. 
The problem we know, because he wrote it in First Thessalonians, do you remember? He kept, he kept um, encouraged them to keep working while waiting on the Lord because we knew that had happened that they had been mistaught. Um, they were taught wrong, and they were taught that to just sit. The Lord, the Lord is upon us. We're just going to sit here and wait. No, the Lord does never say in Scripture that we're to be idle, that we should be active, proactive while we wait. It's interesting that in almost every culture, there's a saying about idleness. The Romans say by doing nothing meant learning to do evil. The Jewish rabbi taught, he who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. Instead of running around, Paul said these busy bodies should get to work and do something in the body of Christ. The ones who criticize the church are usually the ones who are doing nothing. And they're not and they're not serving in the church. Paul's third command is found in verse 13. Do not grow weary in doing good. This is definitely easier said than done, right? Sometimes you just feel like, I'm doing good, and I'm doing good, and I just can't anymore. I'm done. I'm done doing good. I don't want to do anymore. I used to tell my friend in um, York, I can't do this anymore. I'm clocking out. Um, We do grow weary. And that's when we need to just go before the Lord and ask him for help, for strength. Let me put worship music on. Just redirect your focus, your thoughts. Fix your eyes back on the Lord. This verse is actually referring to church discipline. You know, it's like a stubborn child. If any of you have a strong-willed child, you know it's hard to stay up at it, to stay up on that child. You want to give up. Don't grow weary while trying to do good. You discipline them, and then you do it again. This is too hard. This is exactly what Paul is talking about, but it's church discipline. You want to keep being persistent. You, want to, you don't want to give up. You wouldn't give up on your child, and he's not going to give up on us. He addresses the same issue of busybodies and idleness again in the first letter, but these particular people, he's still addressing them. They were persist, persistent. They weren't stopping. Paul had addressed them once, and now he does it again because they are not stopping. So you see here, he takes it a step further this time. So Paul warned them again, and now he adds this further step in verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person, and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. The fourth command in verse 14, if they don't obey, note them and do not keep company with them. So Paul takes it a step further. He's given instruction to the church. He's warned them. He's warning the leaders in the church, and he's given the direction. Okay, this is what I want you to do. I know it didn't work the first time. Now try a second time. And if these people will not be quiet and will not obey, then you need to remove them. This is hard as people easily get offended. But Paul says there is a purpose for this command, and he says in the end of the verse that they may not be ashamed. When this happened, your heart is always that you, they would um, turn, that they would think about it and turn, right? But if they don't, Paul gives our final command in verse 15. You do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Don't you love that? Paul adds this, and he didn't have to. Here, these people are not listening. You're saying it again and again, and you don't count them as enemy, but you seek to encourage them, admonish them, so encourage them. Even if, even if they're not listening, you still seek to encourage them. That's the heart of Paul, and that should always be our heart in discipline. Think of your child when you discipline them as a parent. You're not punishing them like a criminal, even though you might want to. 
You're seeking to correct them in love, hoping they will learn and grow. And it is, I'll tell you, it's sometimes it's a season where you feel like it's never ending. This is just a season. I'm just going to label it discipline. That's all we're doing this whole season. But keep at it. Be faithful because you're sending them out into this world one day and you want them to be godly women and men out there because it's a tough world. The same is true inside the church. When these sort of things happen and you have to take these measures that you don't want to do, your heart is always like this as a parent, that you're seeking reconciliation. You want them to grow, and that's really what you want in the end. We have such a beautiful example in our Heavenly Father who gently corrects us. As painful as it may be, he uses his rod and staff as discipline to correct us, to bring about a clear direction in our lives. No one likes to be corrected, but we all must at times. Every single one of us has to go through this, and how we act or react to that correction really says a lot about us, doesn't it? When your kids resist correction, it's hard, isn't it? You just want to shake them and say, I have given you chance after chance, and you're not learning this. But we just don't leave them there, right? We sit there. We pray for them. We continue to instruct them. We continue to love on our kids. We might give ourselves a timeout so we can go back at it again, hoping that one day they will turn and learn and grow from this. I wonder today if we are teachable. Are we willing to be corrected and to be disciplined? Are we repentant when the, puts, when the Spirit puts his finger on something in our life and an area that we need to deal with? Are we obeying the word of God, what the word tells us to do? Are we in obedience to that? Paul ends this letter with praying for the church for two things, peace and grace, both of which we so desperately need, don't we? Verse 16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, the grace of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray.